Why is childcare so expensive? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Deanna Thomas. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Deanna Thomas. Deanna is an Associate Professor of Economics at Creighton University. She's also Director for the Institute of Economic Inquiry at Creighton University and the 2016 President-Elect at the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics. Previously, she was an Assistant Professor of Economics at the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Finance from George Mason University in 2004. And after working as a junior portfolio manager at Allianz Global Investors in Frankfurt, Germany for a year, she returned to George Mason University where she earned her MA and PhD in economics. While pursuing her PhD, she was a Mercatus Center PhD fellow. Her primary fields of research are public choice and Austrian economics. Deanna, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So Deanna, we base each episode on a question and just go wherever the conversation answers take us. Our question today is, why is childcare so expensive? And before we get into some of your answers, I'd like to talk about the work that supports your answers and conclusions and, and your findings. So let's start by you telling us a bit about your research. We're going to talk a little bit more in depth about a paper you have called Regulation, the Cost of Childcare in a second. But again, before we got to what you found out, let's nerd out a bit and talk about how you went about finding it. What, what really went into this study and what kind of data did you analyze? Yeah, so... Um... You know, initially, I guess the motivation for thinking a little bit more about childcare um, was that I have been interested in kind of the what we've been calling regressive effects of regulation. Um, so the effects of regulation on minorities and you know maybe women um, and different groups um, over time, and when I had my first child in 2012. Um, I, you know, wanted to find out a little bit more about childcare, how it's regulated, what the effects of regulation are, just because I was um, observing, you know, the center that she went to, that the childcare center that she attended, and just kind of seeing what they were doing. And it, it got me thinking about, you know, how costly some of the measures are that they're using to um, kind of improve or regulate quality in the, in the center-based setting, at least. Um, and just wondering how costly those were maybe and how sensible some of them were. Um, and so that's when I started thinking about this. Um, there isn't very much data available on this topic. It's kind of hard to come by just because, um, you know, there are lots of different childcare centers. Some of them just comply with state regulation. Others um, kind of set or use higher standards that are based on accreditation agencies. Um, in different places, and so it's difficult to compare a lot of the time. And um, so the only place I really found that had any information was um, it's the Child Care Aware of America organization. They're kind of the the biggest interest group or represent a group of um, child care centers that represents um, child care providers at the national level in the United in the United States, um, and they. Um, publish a report annually kind of on existing rules across the different states in the U.S. Um, and on the cost of care and center-based care in those in those different states. And so the data that we used is, is from them. Um, the other studies that are out there, a lot of the time people kind of ended up collecting data or, uh, themselves. Um, so, you know, there's just not a lot of 
real, really good data out there on this topic, but that's what we ended up doing is just use this information from Child Care Aware of America. And just to clarify one point, you said uh, just a little bit further, because uh, of course, if people aren't used to this sort of field or, or this area here, child care specifically. So you said there's actually uh, different child care centers. Like, can you, can you just paint the picture of what sort of the child care landscape looks? You said on the one hand, you have those that are just doing, I guess, what could we call it the minimal? They're just sort of adhering to state regulations, let's say, for example. On the other hand, there's like accreditation agencies. Can, can you just go a bit more into that? Yeah, so much like in in uh, higher ed um, in child care, there are basically state level rules in the United States that that just kind of regulate um, child care. Um, and the rules are different depending on what what sort of child care setting we're talking about. So child care generally is provided in kind of two ways. It's either a center based care, a child care center that is like a it's like a school, a, a daycare center um, with different cohorts. Um, that are organized by age. Usually they're infants, toddlers, and preschoolers, and they're usually larger groups. Um, the group size is one that's regulated usually. Um, and then the other option for child care is what's called home-based care or family daycare homes. Um, and in those sorts of settings, it's the provider is just some some a person that is providing childcare in their home. So they usually have some space in their in their own home that's um, kind of adapted to the use as a child care center. And then they just have a, a much smaller group of children. And a lot of the time that group's also diverse in ages. So that I, I, they can range from infants to, you know, I guess, and I think in Nebraska, it's up to age eight um, that they can take. Um, so you don't have these age-based cohorts as much. And it's a smaller group. And it's often just one provider, maybe with one helper or something like that. Um, and then the regulation is you know, like I said, state-based, there are some guidelines that are provided by this um, this interest group, the Child Care Aware of America group that I was mentioning earlier. Um, but then other than that, the rules are basically just, they will differ by state and different states have different rules that can be more stringent or, or less stringent. Right. Um, then accreditation is something that's a voluntary kind of measure just like with higher ed. So, you know, business schools in the United States are accredited. Um, there are different organizations that provide accreditation services for business schools. So, for example, there's the AACSB that does business school accreditation. I guess that's the kind of most well-known or highest quality accreditation you can get for a business school. And the same sort of thing is true for child care centers. So um, there is, it's called NACI. I'm not even sure what the acronym stands for, but it's NEA. CY, I believe, um, and they accredit childcare centers. And so their standards for accreditation go beyond the regulatory measures in the state. No, that's excellent. I think that's a, that's a great way to paint the picture of what's going on there. So all that considered, one of the things you highlight, and again, we'll get into some details and a few more specific questions in a second, that ultimately uh, what you found is that Childcare is a quote luxury beyond reach for most lower and middle income families at roughly 25% of the family income. I was quite surprised to read that actually. Um, yeah. And then you further that by saying there's a two class system of childcare in this country high cost regulated care for high income families and lower cost unregulated care for lower income families. So uh, that was in a, in a US news article you wrote about your paper. Um, so, so again, now let's dig a little deeper. You talked about childcare kind of in general, but when we 
look even further, I guess you can say you can divide childcare into general, as you said, into this two class system. We have people that are benefiting from, I guess, higher end childcare, and then uh, other other lower income families that are that are, as you said, in unregulated care. So, um, so, so what's going on there? Is it just a cost thing that's driving this? Is it well, what does like a higher tier and a lower income tier childcare situation look like? So, you know, I guess. The, the way to distinguish is really not, I wouldn't say necessarily higher tier and lower tier, although quality might be associated with that, but it's unclear because okay. it's, it's difficult to measure. But I would say that there is a distinction in terms of regulated and unregulated, unregulated licensed and kind of black market childcare or even informal, um, you might call it childcare. So um, you're right that the, co- the cost of care in, in formal childcare centers um, and that uh, is relatively high. And, I, and for, I think the statistic was that for um, families at the poverty level in 2009, I believe the range was, um, it was 25% of their, their income was spent on childcare in Mississippi. And then it was 86% of their income was spent on childcare in Massachusetts. So obviously that's quite a large range, right? But there's also quite a large range in terms of the cost in the different states. Um, so the different the different tiers are essentially just, I think, based on um, whether a, a childcare setting is licensed and regulated or not. Um, the licensed and regulated centers tend to be a lot more expensive, although that's difficult to quantify or even really talk about because the unregulated and un, un, unregulated and un, unlicensed settings we don't have really much information about. Um, but what we do know is that lower income families are more likely to send their children into settings, into child care settings that are that, that are unregulated. So, for example, the children will be cared for by, you know, a family member that is unlicensed. So instead of going to a child care center or a, a family daycare home, the kids will be dropped off with their grandma or with, um, you know, an uncle or an aunt or with an older sibling. They will be left at home with an older sibling, something like that. Um, and the, the, the percentages there are roughly uh, for people that are below the poverty line, 20% of kids end up in these unlicensed settings. And for people that are above the poverty line, it's only about 9%. So Obviously, that will differ again as you go up into the higher ranges of income. But um, so what we see is just that lower income families tend to exit the market, the formal or regulated market for child care, and instead send their kids to um, unlicensed providers. Now, that creates um, a scenario where we don't know much about the quality of care that those kids are in. Right, right? It could right. be that the, the quality is just as good or better even than in a child care setting, depending on the quality of the center that you're sending your kid to, or the quality of the, the relative and how they're interacting with the kid. Um, or it could be that they're worse, right? We just don't really know. Um, but, but we do know that lower income people tend to make more use of them. And, and um, most likely that's because of the high cost of formalized, regulated, you know, licensed care. So um, that's just kind of the picture. And I guess, as you said, like in, in the unregulated, quote, black market for childcare, like you said, it, it, we can imagine anything from, as you said, being one or two children being dropped off at a relative or the neighbor they trust kind of thing, all the way up to somebody running maybe like a 20 person, 20 kid, I should say, daycare out of there. Like we, like you said, we don't know what that could look like. We just right, exactly. have to leave it to the listener's imagination, I guess, at some point if the data is not there. So, so yeah, so like, as you said, that the cost is obviously a, a problem here. And that's probably why most people exit the market, especially if they're lower income for um, what we could call regulated and official t- types of 
child care. So there was a couple of things you you outlined in the paper that are contributing, I guess, ultimately to the higher cost of child care. And, and I'll break them out here and then you can take us through them. So uh, there's a couple of things. So the first one was like there's a, there's a child staff ratio thing going on. And again, I'm definitely not an expert in this field and most people probably aren't either. So it might sound a little... Um, I guess like starter 101 to you, but but like, can you explain exactly what that is, right? Like, so a child staff rate is, is that exactly the sound? Just the state comes in and basically says it, it's five children to one provider, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's the ratio at which you can have kids to staff. So um, usually that ratio um, varies with the age group. So oh, okay, okay, that's interesting. So it's another layer to think about too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for, for infants, as you can imagine, it's the, it's the lowest ratio of kids per staff, right? So, um, I think it's most places it's something like between four and six infants per staff. Um, and then as you move into toddlers, you get up to like 20 or 15. And then for preschoolers, it's even, even higher. Um, Infants need the most care and attention, obviously, right? They um, they still have kind of undefined schedules. All infants are on different schedules. They all need a bottle at some other time, and they all take naps at some other time. So there's always somebody crying and somebody that needs to be paid attention to, whereas with older kids, they play with each other. And so there's less, um, you know, less attention required from the caregiver. So it's a little bit easier, and you can have more of them. And that just makes sense. Um, so, yeah, that's one way that child care settings are regulated. Another way is uh, they often have group size limits. So, you know, you can only you can have you have you can have you know maybe six infants per teacher, but you can't have more than eighteen infants in one room. Um, or you know you can have twelve toddlers per teacher, but you can only have twenty four toddlers in one group in one room. Um, so that's an additional layer of regulation, um, and then. The other major thing that's regulated in terms of quality of care is usually um, the education requirements for the teachers. So lead teachers often are required to have, you know, a high school diploma or maybe some accreditation in terms of early childhood development. There are also rules for the center director and what kind of credential, educational credential they have to have. Um, and those three are the major uh, re rules that apply really to the quality of care environment. Um, the only other thing that's usually regulated is safety and, and health, and that's regulated with, you know, requirements for, uh, you know, laboratories. You know, sometimes child care centers in some places are required to have child-sized child laboratories, things like that. Um, they're required to have a fenced-in backyard. Um, play equipment has to have certain, you know, safety um, measures and requirements that it has to meet. Like, it has to be a certain you know, uh, distance away from whatever, like a fence or a building and things like that. And just to 100% clarify again, I know we mentioned at the beginning. So and this, this, these, these types of regulations, as you said, vary across multiple states, right? It's not as if there's a there's a federal governing body that says this is the this is the child staff race ratio. This is the group size restriction. It's like you can kind of plunk yourself down in any state and find a whole different mess of regulations, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they're not that far apart. There some of states are within some range um, that's relatively close together, but there are some variations. So like I was saying for infants, I think the range is between four and six. So it's not a lot of, you know, difference. I mean, there are no states that allow 20 infants per teacher. And so, and again, like I know I'm drilling down really deep here, but it is quite interesting because I'm thinking as well from the perspective of markets and how like even entrepreneurs can enter the market. And at some, as at some point, for instance, there's like a group size restriction that you, that you hit in some states where for instance, 
and again, I'm just making this up, but like you, you would have to move out of, for instance, care in the home to a commercial environment kind of thing and start renting. But like, are there, are there kind of tiers like that regulated in some states where it's, for instance, a home licensed care provider can have up to 10 children. And then if you want 20 or 30, you have to have a center like that kind of stuff is also a place. Yes, yes exactly. So the home-based care is usually, there's a maximum of, I mean, it's usually a maximum of something like 10 or eight. Um, you can go up, I think, if you have an employee that you hire, but then you quickly enter the the range of center-based care. And then you have to comply with a whole bunch of other safety and health care regulations that don't exist for um, family daycare homes. So the biggest difference between these family-based and, you know, in the provider's home sort of care settings and the center-based care is that they have a lot fewer restrictions in terms of health and safety because they're in a home, so they don't have to comply with um, the commercial sort of, like, safety. Right, right. We have to assume that their house is up to housing standards, so it's kind of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. There are some rules that they still have to have, like, they have to... Usually, they have to have a fence around their backyard, things like that, just, you know, basic safety. Um, but other stuff, they don't have to comply with the, the same rules the centers have to comply with. So centers tend to have stricter rules. And the last thing you mentioned there, of course, was the, the training and education requirements were stopped. I guess if we look at other fields and other industries as, as precedents, then this is definitely, of course, has to be a cost driver as well, right? Like one of the one of the larger ones I'm thinking like, uh, but the more the more training and education you require someone to do a job, the more obviously it usually takes to pay them in the market. If we get into licensing, that's a whole other issue with the amount of labor that's available in the market. So so I would imagine that this is this is a big one too. Yeah, so the absolutely the education requirements and then the the child staff ratios we find are like the biggest drivers of the of the cost of care. Um, group size limits seem to be less important. And I think the reason that is is basically just because, you know, if you're already regulating your child staff ratio, then the group size is not going to make that much of a difference. All that to say, I think we've, we've definitely spent a couple minutes here talking about different types of regulation, what the field of child care looks like. So shifting over to what that means, ultimately, we've been teasing out and talking about costs a lot going up and up. And there's sort of a, a sentence that I thought wrapped it up quite quite nicely that you, you've written, which says, some types of regulation might significantly affect the price of care. Okay, so that's on the one hand. But then, of course, without contributing much to quality at the same time. So I guess I guess here is where we ultimately get the problem, right? I think most people aren't objecting to any industry or any field usually where something as the price goes up, you get more. You can think of hotels, right? There's a $80 hotel versus a $300 hotel. But in and we can imagine what those hotels might look like in our head in terms of quality. But you're saying that in, in many cases in the child in the field of childcare, we see prices going up, but nothing really changing except uh, that the the cost itself, the the quality isn't improving too much. So that's, I guess, obviously a huge problem if regulations are piled on top of regulations and uh, families have to pay dollars upon dollars. But th there's really nothing going on as far as the quality of care they're 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 receiving apparently. Yeah. So you know, with all regulation, it's always a question, right? Whether or not the thing that you can measure and regulate is actually the thing that drives the outcome that you're looking for. And that's true across the board. It's totally independent of the industry that you're that you're thinking about. And so with childcare, um, what you what you see is that regulation is usually based on what are called these structural measures of, of childcare. So all of the things that we've been talking about, um, child staff ratios, group size limits and teacher education requirements those are all those are all examples of structural measures of care um, 
Now, it turns out that, or at least, you know, what we did um, in our paper is we, we reviewed kind of the literature in early childhood development to, to figure this out because we're, we're, we were economists. My co-author, Devin Gore, and I were, uh, were economists, so our expertise is not in early childhood development, but we kind of reviewed the literature on the topic and um, the literature on early childhood development kind of distinguishes between these structural measures of care and then what are called process measures of child care. And process measures are measures that attempt to measure the quality of the interaction of the interaction between the teacher and the child. Um, now, every parent right knows this. It's it's hard to imagine when you're not a parent, but every parent knows that at the end of the day. Um, you know, what's most important for your, for your child's development is kind of how you model <laughs> human interactions, right? And, and how you behave, right? So there's some obvious things that, that you might think of. Like if you say please and thank you, then your kids will do it too, you, you know, uh, stuff like that. And the, and the same is true for their interactions with their teachers. If the teachers model good behavior and, you know, the children come and, and come with a problem and the teacher models uh, kind of good problem-solving skills, then the kids will learn good problem-solving skills, right? Or if um, the kids come with a complaint about another child and the teacher kind of helps them solve that problem on their own, that's probably better than if the teacher tries to punish, you know, whatever, whoever they thought was the offender in the, in the conflict between the children or uh, things like that. And, and again, I'm not an expert here at all. But the distinction is between structural measures um, that are easy to measure because they tell us something about the environment of the child care center or the child care setting. So um, staff-child ratios, group size limits, um, and teacher education versus process measures, which, which are just measures of the, the direct interaction between the teachers and the, and the kids. Now, because the, the process measures of educational quality are extremely difficult to measure, um, what we end up getting is regulation being based on structural measures only, right? So you can't really regulate how a teacher is going to respond to a child when the child comes to the teacher with a problem or a concern. Um, and that's, again, that's also something that's true across the board. Like if you think about primary education or even higher education, right, teacher quality is something um, that's not really measurable in terms of like test outcomes or things like that, but it's how the teacher interacts with the children in the classroom. So it's not not kind of not really an unusual insight, I think, um, at the at the end of the day. So, but then the pro the problem always is is that what we're regulating is really not the thing that drives um, the quality of care. So what the early childhood development literature finds is that very rarely are structural measures really all that important for creating a care environment that produces good child outcomes. Um, right, so okay. if you, you know, if you're looking at um, children's ability to verbalize at different ages or children's ability to um, read and write at different ages, um, it doesn't seem that the structural measures of their care environment really influence um, child outcomes. But the process measures of the child care environment that they were exposed to do seem to make a bigger difference in terms of, of outcomes that we want to see right. um, for child care and child development. If, if it's the structural things that are regulated, but not the process things that are regulated, and you're saying ultimately the process things are, are, the, are the factors that drive the quality of a child's early early childhood, I guess, then that, that's obviously a problem there. In, in, in other words, 
uh, letting a daycare, I guess, have one more kid or, or maybe uh, upping that group size restriction by one at a daycare isn't going to destroy someone's early childhood development is what I'm right. hearing. Yeah. And, and you know, there is some obvious it, – it's, it's hard to disentangle in some sense these different measures um, a little bit at least, right? Um, so if you're thinking about childcare um, at certain ages – the group size becomes less important, but then um, at younger ages, group size might be, you know, heavily correlated with the quality of the pr procedures that the teachers use, right? So, or how, you know, if a teacher is in a care environment where they have to care for eight infants, say, something like that, right? Um, that's an incredibly difficult task. Like, I would never want to have to do it. Um, you know, I have a hard time imagining what parents with, with uh, twins do, uh, <laughs> but uh you know, so if you have eight infants to care for, you might get stressed and that also changes how you interact with the infants, right? So obviously group size and how many children there are per staff can have an effect on on the process measures of care. Right. Yeah, exactly. If we want to be absurd about it, we could say like, well, obviously we can't say a daycare center has 20. Now, we, now it should be 520 and everything will be right. okay. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I actually, I actually think that's a good place to take our break. So we'll do, we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Deanna Thomas today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTaskAtLiberalStudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Rosa Pagliarello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Deanna Thomas today. So, so Deanna, at the, in the first half of our conversation, we, we talked about the childcare landscape roughly. We sort of illustrated some of the different factors that uh, that, that potentially drive up costs in, in the childcare area. So now I want... I don't want to talk about, let's say, solutions right now, because I'll leave that a bit more towards the end. But there's a couple of interesting things that you wrote in this paper and a couple of interesting things also in your article, a few statements I'd like to talk about. So in terms of how we think about reducing costs for childcare, at least, you, you sort of said, quote, in fact, our, in our sample, an increase in the child to staff ratio by one child would on average result in a 20% reduction in the cost of care. Before the break, we were sort of joking, like, obviously, we don't want to play with numbers like 500 and 1,000, but but this is very interesting, the impact that even uh, playing with limitations on, on childcare and regulations by one child can have a, a cost, like uh, basically impact of that much. That, that's pretty crazy to me when I read that. That was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you have to take all, our results with, a, with kind of a grain of salt because they're based on a limited sample and, um, and we're not really showing causality, but... Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, the results were statistically significant and they're definitely economically meaningful, right? So um, what we what we find is that, especially for infants, if you increase or if you increased um, the child staff ratio by just one infant, one additional infant per teacher, then you would get a, a reduction in the cost of care of between 9 and 20%. Yeah. It's a little bit less for older kids when you move into the like four-year-old cohort than um, the reduction would just be, I think, like 7%. Um, 
But yeah, it's definitely a, a huge change. At least it's it's bigger than zero, like in the sense that some people might think, ah, oh, what's the difference one child going to make, give or take? But apparently it can, at least again, according to your sample site. That's still very interesting in and of itself, because I, I do think that when people, especially in policy discussions and especially when it gets very partisan, people think about, you know, words like deregulating and this and that. And like it just gets extreme, whereas in reality, we could be talking about tweaking things that make huge differences on people's pocketbook. And, and that would definitely help more lower income families for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, with, with, with childcare, you always have to remember, I think that infant care is going to be expensive because it's labor intensive and there's really no good way around that, you know, infants require a lot of care and attention. So, um, that's, that, that's always going to be expensive, but there are small changes that I think we can make to make it a little bit more, more, uh, cost effective or a little bit less costly, at least for, for people and for families. Um, now, um, with older kids, I think uh, the rules are, uh, while, you know, while we don't find a very strong result in terms of economic significance, I mean, it's still, it's still, it's still a good result. It's still interesting that you could reduce the cost of care, um, you know, by five to seven percent or something like that um, by increasing the the child staff ratio by one. But I think with older kids, especially in the United States, um, relaxing the rules could significantly lower the cost of care. And I think you could you could have group sizes and, and child staff ratios that are much larger than than what we currently have without much, much change in the and the quality of the care environment. I think one of the objections that people have to toying with regulation too much is that um, it's not just on the the child well-being side, well, it's correlated, but also the types of people that a profession might attract, or the, again, back to this education thing and the training, uh, the types of people that are actually working in a certain field being you know, being of a certain quality. Um, one interesting statement that you also had was if one provider is allowed to care for a larger number of children, so point one, okay, so that secondly, that provider can earn a higher wage, and therefore, higher wages would attract better educated providers and reduce staff turnover rates overall. So it might not just be um, a situation where we're just talking about what cost it would be to families. We might actually also be playing with the idea that tweaking some regulation and, and seeing the field kind of construct in a different way might also result in having perhaps better educated and more qualified providers if, if the wages actually went up a little bit because of everything we've just been talking about. So I found that a very interesting point as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing the thing that's interesting about the the qualifications of the providers is not only that, you know, getting them to getting getting some more qualified teachers would improve the, those process measure, measures of care that we've been talking about. Another thing um, that higher wages tend to do or seem to do is that they improve the permanence of the staff in their positions. So um, childcare is notorious for extremely high turnover rates because um, the childcare staff tend to be relatively low, uh, low skill and, um, or, you know, trying to find better jobs. And so they're extremely high turnover rates. And it turns out that the the permanence of the relationship that the children have with their teachers is actually a really important measure of childcare quality, um, in addition to those other process measures that we that we were talking about. So, you know, kids just do well if they are around somebody that they're familiar with, that they trust, and um, if that relationship has to change constantly because every you know four months there's a new teacher in the room, that just creates lots of uncertainty and and 
insecurities for the kids, I guess. So sh- shifting gears to something else right now, because um, I, I think throughout the conversation, again, we've sort of been just talking about the cost of childcare and, and what families need to, to, to pay and things like that. So some people in their heads might might think of whatever that ideal family unit of is of in their head and basically think, okay, there's a certain amount of money coming out of their pocket and things to that. But it's not just a decision on what to pay for childcare that ultimately we're talking about here. Uh, specifically, you, you point this out, I believe it was in the paper too, that this actually might affect other life decisions or other decisions people are making. For instance, specifically, I'm talking about uh, the disproportionate that are a burden on women that's actually seen through this situation. So I'll quote to you here. You say, working makes sense if the wage that one makes in the workforce exceeds the marginal cost of childcare by more than forgone welfare received when not working. Empirical evidence suggests that all women, and single mothers in particular, base their decision about whether to seek employment or to apply for wealth care on the price of child care. So unpack that for us. Yeah, so, you know, this isn't something that that's probably unfamiliar to people. You know, at the end of the day, when you're deciding over whether or not to, to send your child to a child care center or some other non-family provider of child care, um, you always have to consider the cost of doing that um, to the benefits that you get from sending them, right? Because it's costly. And so you you want to make sure that you're, you're actually receiving um, enough in terms of benefit for the cost that you're expending. So, you know, if I send if I send my, my child to, to daycare and it costs, um, you know, $25,000 a year to do that, then I have to make at least $25,000 to warrant sending them. Um, and then on top of that, I probably want to make a little bit more than that because otherwise I could just as well stay home and care for them myself because, you know, a lot of mothers, especially, but I'm sure I'll so fathers find themselves in a situation where they might think, you know, my child's young and I probably should be spending some time with them. Um, you know, sending them to daycare full time is is reducing the amount of time that I'm spending with them. And so I want to, you know, I want I want to make that the time that I'm giving up spending with them worth it. So um, that puts a, a limitation on um, families' ability to go out and. Um, earn earn an income, um, whether it be single mothers or two-parent homes. Um, and the, the cost of care is kind of the deciding factor here. And, and this is something that's not uh, something that we explore in this paper that we've been talking about, but um, that's a result that we, we're just a re- reporting on from the existing literature. There's an interesting study that actually looked at Canada, and it's by Connolly and Kimmel. It's from 2009. It was published in the Journal of Political Economy. If people are curious, they can look it up. But um, they find that a 1% increase in the price of childcare um, results in a 0.3 to 1.1 reduction in employment of single mothers. So there's a, a, a strong and interesting effect on, on employment. Um, you know, that's obviously something that we intuitively already understood, but they're just providing some empirical evidence to support that. Um, yeah, so, you know, mothers, single mothers especially, are limited in their ability to pursue employment opportunities when childcare is expensive or hard to come by. Right. As you said, this is something that if you think through, makes a lot of sense. But I, but I would hope that it gives anyone listening pause to sort of think that, some t- you know, sometimes the, the sort of one dimensional or, or superficial idea we have in our head about how someone can solve their problems isn't necessarily as easy as as, as it is to say, right? Like, you know, someone right. someone could say, well, you know, you could still make it work. You can, you know, put, put your kid in, in, in childcare, get yourself a job, even if you're single mom, single dad, whatever, you can, you can still make that work. It's like, well, 
yeah, but the the if you have a child, it does need to go somewhere when you're working. And as you said, if if the cost of that exceeds any benefit you're getting from working, that that's sort of a, a trap you find yourself in just from a decision making perspective. Exactly right. And you have to remember that you know if people if people are employed, then they're also no longer eligible for many welfare benefits or right. you know any kind of um, safety net programs that might exist in whatever country you're in. And so. Um, that's that's a cost, right? Having to give that up and instead earn a living, then you have to cover the cost both of the childcare, but also of the foregone welfare benefits that you could be receiving if you were unemployed. And, and and specifically, I think it's also important before we leave that point, just to say that I guess as well, these aren't just considerations for the short term. That is to say, it's not just whether somebody's assigned to work this week or, or next year, and, and you know where their kid's going to go and what what the cost is. This could potentially have long term effects, right? Especially as if we go back to the example of of. Of, of, of the single mom, let's say, for instance, that it's not just whether or not she's getting a job for that year or not, like a job eventually builds into a career and where you can go in life. So that is to say that we're not just talking about something and decisions that affect, again, a week by week, paycheck to paycheck sort of situation. If someone is not entering the labor force when they otherwise could because this childcare situation is in the back of their mind. Um, again, you could be delaying other things, like I said, potentially careers. And and, and that ultimately is a sacrifice, right? A decision that you have to make. Uh, right. Five years yeah. out of the workforce for whatever reason means that you don't have five years experience, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's, again, it's not just like a short-term problem. I, I think at least that's what I got out of reading your stuff as well. So this is this is midterm and long-term problem as well for right. some people. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the literature on the the female or on the gender wage gap um, emphasizes this point as well. You know, women tend to have, um, are more likely to have interruptions in employment, um, are more likely to take time off to um, care for their children, um, not just for, you know, immediately after birth, but also uh, longer term. Um, women tend to, um, tend to, be disadvantaged in professions where you have to have uh, flexible work, you know, where you have to work long hours and you sometimes have to work on the weekend and, and stuff like that um, for, because of childcare um, concerns or family concerns. And so um, when you're unable to access reliable and low cost or a cost, well, relatively low cost childcare, then that means it has long-term impact on your, on your career. And we, I think we see that play out in, in statistics on the, on the gender wage gap. So women earn less because, you know, at least one of the reasons potentially is that, that they have greater interruptions in their careers and things like that. Right, exactly. And as you said, relatively low cost for all those listening. We're not saying that the childcare can somehow be made to be the same price as a Big Mac or something per hour. Yeah, but, but exactly. <laughs> exactly. Relatively lower. They could be relatively lower. And that's actually a nice segue into the next thing I want to talk about. So we talked a lot about costs. We talked about what drives them, the problems that that come with, with higher cost childcare. And, we, you know, we've teased some ideas about what can be done to make the cost uh, reduce perhaps, but but I guess uh, one of the last things I want to ask you today is just just point blank. Uh, what are what are some policy recommendations or changes people can can think of if we want to sort of tie a knot around that? Like what what would you say to somebody saying, okay, Deanna, that's all fine. What should we do about this then? Yeah, I think there are kind of two things that come out of this paper that we wrote. Um, one is that if you really care about quality of childcare, um, you ought to reconsider some of the the regulatory measures that are currently in place. Um, it, 
it seems, at least from what we were able to gather from the existing literature and the early childhood development, that teacher quality matters a lot and teacher education can matter a lot. So whether or not somebody has taken a class in early childhood development over the last six months, for example, seems to be something that significantly improves um, their interactions with the children that they care for. And so that might be a measure of regulation that's actually useful and improves quality, whereas um, some of the structural measures like group size limits and staff-child ratios are not as as important in creating um, good quality care environments. And so I think from that perspective, it makes sense to just kind of change the way regulation works a little bit, F focus more on the educational requirements for the caregivers and a little bit less on the, on the other structural measures of care. Um, now, that would still be kind of, the, the result of that would still be that Childcare is expensive because, you know, increasing the educational requirements would obviously increase the cost. So just deregulating parts of it doesn't really make it more, um, more cost effective um, or a lower cost. Um, the other aspect is, is that just um, offering kind of maybe different levels of, of regulation and, and uh, licensing for childcare might be the way to go if you're worried about offering some childcare options that are more affordable for low-income families, right? So currently, low-income families send their kids to unregulated care settings much more frequently than higher-income families do. And so that means that at least sometimes those, the children find themselves in care settings that are inadequate or inappropriate. And so um, it might make sense to just kind of have tiers of, you know, regulatory requirements, some that are, you know, higher tier, some that are lower tier, and you can kind of pick and choose based on your income where you'd like to send your kids because, you know, letting people choose often is, is a way to um, kind of improve the, the, the outcome for everybody, right? So having a, a relatively less regulated center-based care might still be better than sending your child to um, an unregulated caregiver that's that's a really terrible caregiver, right? So um, while it, it might sound kind of crazy to say, you know, having these different regulatory tiers would end up, you know, end up making it such that high-income families still send their kids to the best quality care environments and low-income families are stuck in those less well-regulated centers. Um, I think the alternative to that is sending low-income kids to completely unregulated centers. And then we don't know what the outcome is, I guess. Um, Right. So maybe something like that. Um, and then, you know, alternatively, it's just thinking about completely getting rid of regulation, I guess. Um, I mean, I guess ultimately that's what's happening, right? When people circumvent the regulation by just sending their kids to un unregulated care settings, um, they are circumventing the regulation that's supposed to ensure quality. It's de, de facto unregulated care is what that is. So exactly. Like, yeah. Other proposals, and this isn't something that I necessarily would endorse, are just greater subsidies for early childhood education, right? And, and that might make some sense. Um, at least in the U.S., we're talking about um, subsidizing higher education at higher levels. Um, and but, but we're not talking about subsidizing early childhood education at, at, at higher levels. Um, I think between the two, if you just, you know, look at some some different things like who benefits from the two right um then i think you you could argue that it would probably make more sense to um, funnel more money into early childhood education and not worry so much about higher ed right so even in the u.s where i think um 
like 60% or between 40 and 60%, I think, of a, of a cohort go to um, some sort of higher institution of higher education after, after they graduate from high school. Um, we still see that the majority of the people that end up benefiting from subsidies to higher ed tend to be higher income people, right? So lower income people don't even ever make it into college because, you know, they, they drop out of high school. They are in bad educational environments early on. And so they, um, they don't ever qualify for college. Um, I think spending the money instead on, on early childhood education would probably benefit lower income families, um, and and maybe move us in the direction of providing a sort of you know more equal uh, kind of um, you know educational environment for different income groups if that's something you're worried about. As you as you said, if it subsidies for forms of education is on someone's agenda on someone's mind, maybe it'd be a good idea, as you said, to consider kind of the foundation that all children start at, rather than okay, now they're all they're, everyone's different because of their different life paths. So let's subsidize them further, kind of thing. Yeah, if we're thinking about the payoff to how government spends its money, I would say <laughs> send send some of the money that we're currently spending on higher ed towards um, towards early childhood stuff. I'm wondering if sort of like a speaking of you said people being free to choose, if, if you will, earlier. I wonder if some sort of like voucher system for childcare would be something worth thinking about, or or I'm not sure if there's a discussion about that, if there's any literature on that. But that sort of came to mind as you were talking about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I've never seen that, but I think that that's a great idea, right? So especially if you provide the voucher, maybe based on income or something like that, you qualify for a voucher for childcare, and then you can send your kit wherever you like to. Currently, the way that early childhood education is subsidized in the United States, at least, is through uh, block grants to the states that are used for early Head Start programs and things like that. And those programs are great. Um, the problem the problem is that they usually have long wait lists, and then there are lots of people that can't access them for that reason, so... Um, maybe providing vouchers is an easier way to do it and and one that, that gets you around some of the capacity problems with the early Head Start programs. Well, I think we'll go to our formal wrap up right now. So, so Deanna, in each episode, we want the, what the guests to have the last last word, basically. So so let me ask you, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring our conversation full circle if we can and, and put a finer point on, on our exploration of the question. So, so let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why childcare is so expensive? If you could leave them with one or two statements or high level, what level thoughts to tie it all up, what are those really? Yeah. Uh, I think childcare is expensive because it's a labor-intensive service that we're that um, that we're looking at. So it's going to be expensive, whether or not you know we change much in terms of how it's regulated. But the way that it currently is regulated, I think, unnecessarily increases the cost of of uh, childcare. And so I think there are ways that we can change the way it's regulated in order to improve the quality of care, um, while also maybe spending a little bit less money on on the early childhood um, settings that we that we send our kids to um, so at the end of the day really um, my my biggest insight is probably just that when you're thinking about regulation whether that's for early childhood or for you know vehicle safety or whatever it may be um, what you really want to do is look at the effectiveness of your regulatory institutions right do they actually accomplish the goal that I'm looking for and do they do so in a cost effective way and are there maybe cheaper ways of getting at this outcome in a in a more direct way right or in a in a in a better way um, can we accomplish the regulatory goals at a lower cost um, more effectively somehow I think we'll leave it there then Deanna Thomas thank you very much for joining me on the curious task today thank you so much for having me this was a lot of fun 
This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.